Gospel of John, chapter 14. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we saw the status of the apostles. They're now well aware that the Lord is going to be crucified, and they're running these things through their mind, and it's got to be hard to comprehend. It's got to be hard to grasp. Matter of fact, Peter even speaks up, like Peter so often does. We saw it in the previous chapter, chapter 13, verses 36 and 38, that Peter's got one of his great ideas, and he says that he would lay down his life for Jesus. And the Lord says, not only will you not lay down your life for me, but you will deny me, that you or deny that you even know me. And so we see how the, the, the disciples, the apostles, their hearts are described in verse 1 of chapter 14, when Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. The only reason you say that to somebody is because they have a troubled heart. We just prayed for a bunch of people. A lot of them had a troubled heart. We have people in here tonight that very well have a troubled heart. We deal with so much in this life. But where is our focus to be? And that's what Jesus is telling his apostles in their troubled condition. That in their troubled condition, in the midst of all that goes on, in the midst of all that they don't understand, that they are to look to the Lord of their life. They are to look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in chapter 14, Jesus tells Peter that the believer will not be able to do Jesus' ministry as far as laying down his life for the Lord, but that's okay, because Jesus is going to do that ministry, and he gives him an assurance in the midst of it that Jesus has going, when he leaves, he's going to go prepare a place for Peter. Now, we have these great promises that we receive from the Lord And specifically in context here, it's for those times when we have a troubled heart because it's a misnomer to believe, to understand that which has been taught out there that if you're a Christian, you're just going to live a blessed life for the rest of your life and hardship is never going to come. And that's just simply not true. We see the apostles, even in the presence of Jesus, were troubled while Jesus is preparing them to see him upon the cross. And so we're told today, the Apostle Paul, in response to the believer's troubled heart, said in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, be anxious for nothing. Now we have this great scripture that we need to grasp the beginning of it and understand the magnitude of what the Holy Spirit is saying through the Apostle Paul. Be anxious for nothing. And I can look at that and say, okay, yeah, well, I can, these are the things that I won't really be anxious about. But then, Lord, you don't understand. There's this, and there's this, and there's this. And we can start building the magnitude of that, which is going to cause us to be troubled. But the Lord tells us, be anxious for nothing. Well, then what are we to do? It says, but in everything, in every, all that goes on in your life, all that may trouble your heart, he says, but in everything, by prayer, or he's speaking of when he says prayer in this particular context, in your conversation with God, in supplication, that means to pray for a purpose, because sometimes you're just generally praying and having fellowship with God. Sometimes there's some pretty hard things, some specific things that are going on, and that would be what supplication is, praying for something specifically. And with thanksgiving, and that speaks of adoration, understanding that it's God who is going to give the answer He says, in those things, let your requests be made known to God. And what's the result of that? He says here, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, 
I put the devotions that I write on Facebook every day. Once in a while, about once a week or something for $20, you can boost it. And usually we'll have about 100 people that read it. Well, when you boost it, it'll go up to about 2,000 people that read it. Well, we've had this guy from India. He tried to get a hold of me. He just, uh, I think he tried to get a hold. Yeah, through the Internet, that's what it was. My wife gets those emails. And I was wondering if I could have Pastor Mike's Gmail address. And it just didn't look really legit and, and didn't really respond to it. Well, he found somebody of our church and started Julie, and he started texting her. And there's some things that are kind of far out and kind of seem like veiled threats even. And, you know, when you hear these things, it can grasp you. But again, we're told that God is going to guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. doesn't mean that Christians aren't going to be troubled. doesn't mean that Christians aren't going to even die. But Jesus has gone to prepare a place. Because remember, he's speaking to the apostles. All of them, with the exception of the apostle John, were going to be martyred for their faith. But Jesus says, behold, I go to prepare a place for you. And where I am, there you will be also. Then in verses 7 through 11, after Jesus telling them some pretty amazing things, told them, if you examine who I am, you will see God. And the ability of God to cause all of these promises to happen will make these promises a surety in their life. This isn't just some prophet speaking. This isn't some religious man speaking. This is God speaking and making these promises in the things that he's going to do. It's why we're told in Philippians 4.19, And my God shall supply all of your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And so even as Jesus is going away and has provided for them, he's been there. They've been able to depend upon him. Even as he goes away, they're still able to have that dependency upon him. God is still going to provide just as surely as he, he multiplied those fish and loaves of bread that God is going to provide for their every need in the midst of their ministry. Now, Jesus is going to instruct on the unimaginable to the disciples, again, that which they never comprehend, that they are going to have to go forward in their lives without the physical presence of the Lord. And so what he's giving here is and what we need to see from this point on, really through to the end of the gospel, Jesus is going to be giving very practical instruction. Practical instruction for those who are going to do the work of ministry in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, but not having the physical presence of Christ standing right next to you that you're able to see and that you're able to touch. And so just as they were going to do ministry that way, it's the same way that we do ministry. We have a habit of looking at religious instruction in mystical terms, but we must understand that the Bible is the most practical book that we will ever read. It has to be. If it's truly the Word of God, then the Bible will be the most practical book that I will ever have. It will be the manual for my life. As I go through certain things, as I experience things, the answer is going to be in the scriptures. And so in chapter 12, Jesus says, most surely. When Jesus says, truly, truly, or he says, most surely, he's about to say something very important. It's something to grab our, their attention, something to grab our attention. Most surely, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also and greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. 
Now, we were looking at Acts chapter 4 in the men's study on Wednesday mornings, and that's when John and Peter were walking through the gate called Beautiful, and they saw a lame man there, and the lame man asked them for some alms, and that's where Peter said, gold and silver, I have none, but that which I have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And the man did, and it was an absolute miracle of God. But if you look in in John chapter 12, that that lame man who was at the pool of Bethesda, you'll see a lot of parallels between those two. And I have to imagine, as the Holy Spirit laid this upon Peter's heart as he was walking by that man, there had to be reference in his head back to that miracle that that Jesus caused to happen. But also, what was said here? That works that I do, he will do also. And so this is a, an amazing, amazing promise that was given to the apostles, but it wasn't just given to the apostles. This was to reverberate throughout the church age. And so the logical question would be, if we took it out of context, if there was a lack of understanding, when do we start healing the lame and the blind? When do we start cleansing out the hosp- clearing out the hospitals? When do we start feeding the hungry of Ontario with a few fish and a couple loaves of bread? When we change the weather as Jesus did when he calmed the sea, raised the dead from the cemeteries. Well, Jesus did some great works, and if we are to do greater works, then seems to me we should get going. But there's a couple of things that we have to know to understand because just those silly things that I just said, they don't really play out. And so Jesus said those things, and so there's got to be the truth of it, that the, greater, the works that he do, we will do also, but also greater works that we'll have that opportunity to do. But the fact of the matter is nobody here has ever healed anybody because nobody here has the ability to heal. It's only God who has the ability to heal. I've prayed for some people, and they have gotten better. I've prayed for others, and they've gotten worse. And so how does all of this play out? There's still the hungry Matter of fact, there's still the church and sometimes even the church struggles. Well, there's two key words here that we need to focus upon that we would not do damage to either the verse or damage to people's walks or faith. Two key key words are believe and works. Most surely I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. There's a couple of views in this. Some people say if you have enough faith, you'll be able to do any miracle. If you can't do a miracle, then you don't have enough faith. And so that really destroys the faith that people do have when they realize that there's no real miracle working through them, such as others define miracles to be. And again, it it, it defeats people at the core. Am I really even saved? Do I really even have any kind of a walk? Is the Holy Spirit really dwelling inside of me? Most who proclaim great faith and miracles, they're found out to be frauds, and they're found out to be false. And so that can't be what Jesus is talking about here. Others have said that this is a true verse, which it is a true verse, only it's humanly impossible to have the level of belief to do greater works than what Jesus did. But if it was impossible to do that, the Lord would not have made this statement. The Lord doesn't make silly statements that are going to cause man to be confused, that are going to cause man to to lose faith. Nowhere in the Bible does God ask us to do anything that he will not enable us to accomplish. So everything, including this verse, that Christ has called us, commanded us to do, he's going to enable us to accomplish. 
And so verse 12 says, he who believes. When it says he who believes, the idea behind it is anybody who truly believes. Now, last week in verses 7 through 11, we saw many people. We saw people who saw Jesus just physically, but didn't really believe. Some people examined Jesus. They saw that he was a man, but they considered him to just be a man, maybe even a good man, but they didn't believe. It's how the majority of least people in our society see Jesus, that he was a good prophet, said some good things, did some good things. You could even point back into history and see how history was altered, but they don't recognize him truly as God and definitely not the Lord of their life. But there were a few who examined and came to the place of understanding. These believed and have faith in Jesus and whom he is. In Mark 16, 16, it says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. So the idea here is, when he speaks of belief, speaking of you. It's speaking of people who are believers in Jesus Christ and just marrying it together with Mark 16, 16, it's speaking of people who have belief to the degree that they are born again. So, looking back now at verse 12, most surely I say to you, he who is born again, the works that I do, he will do. So what the church needs to know today is that the belief spoken is of us all, and so we all have this great potential. We all have this great potential to do greater works, and I'll describe what that means in a minute. But each person sitting here, you have the potential to do greater works than even what were written about in the Scriptures. Now, so easily we can run our minds to the point of walking on water. How am I going to glorify Christ by walking on water? Mike will probably receive the glory for that. Um, Feeding of 5,000 people. Again, people will start looking to me, and that will not be a good thing for them, nor will it be a good thing for me. Everything that I do must point people to Jesus Christ. And so you have to believe. Belief, again, speaks of salvation. The works are definitely miracles. They're definitely that of a supernatural uh, or maybe a divine, it would be a better term, a divine nature. So I guess we've got to look at the work greater. The key here is this is greater as defined by God and not us. Now, we looked at a verse last week in our study in verses 7 through 11. We looked at 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 11 through 12. We had Elijah. Elijah just saw this mighty miracle of God. He had this confrontation with the prophets of Baal. And he said, we'll offer a sacrifice, and you call down fire from your God, and, and if he consumes the the sacrifice, then your God is God, they're false gods. And he says, I'll call down fire from my God, and if my God consumes the sacrifice, then my God is God. And most of you know the story. These guys, they set the sacrifice, they set everything perfect, and they were dancing, and they were cutting themselves, and they were doing everything physically possible to see a miracle come about. But we know right off, they're, they're, they're hindered. First of all, they have belief in a false God. Secondly, they don't believe in Jesus Christ. So that miracle is never really going to come to pass. And so they did what they did, and they were mocked and the whole thing. So then it was Elijah's turn, and Elijah just prays to God, and the fire comes down, and the sacrifice is consumed. Now this is a huge miracle. 
Elijah, I don't see where he got the glory for this. I believe that he pointed it to the Lord. And so God did this great thing. But now it's over. And so he leaves. He leaves Mount Carmel. My wife and I were there. It overlooks the Valley of Jezreel, which is the uh, Valley of Armageddon. It's a pretty amazing place. And anyway, he, he leaves, and he gets word that Jezebel has designs to kill him. Now, all of a sudden, this is a man who just saw this mighty miracle of God, but it didn't increase his faith. Matter of fact, you start, you get caught up, even in the good things, if you're not content with the little things, the good things aren't really, or say, good thing, I'm sorry, the big things aren't going to really have that much of an impact. We need to find contentment in the little miracles, maybe even the little things that we don't see that or really don't recognize coming from God, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would review things like this. We have this the list of the prayer requests, and that we would look at these things and learn to start maybe checking off a few answered prayers to see how God does move in his people's lives, to see in the areas where he has healed. That's why I appreciate Madeline Heron, you know, letting us know the day after how well the procedure went, because we prayed for her. We were in here last Thursday night. We prayed for her. She was having an angioplasty kind of a thing, an angiogram is what it was, and I think they did do an angioplasty where they cleaned out some veins. And then the next day she told us that the procedure went where? And I, you know, you can say, well, the doctors did a good job. Well, I look at God did a job. And again, we, we can't let these things get past because you can take it for routine. Did God really work that miracle or the doctors? Well, all healings, as far as I'm concerned, they come from God. Well, back to Elijah, he hears this, and most of us know he's pretty depressed. You know, he, he just stood before 500 people. Now this one queen says she's going to kill him, and he's out of it. And so we have this section of Scripture that we saw. We need to recognize God in the small things. It says, then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in an earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in a fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And that's where God is in the majority of the time. He's in that still, small voice. He's in two people that are off in the corner of the church just praying He's with two people in the fellowship area that are talking about the study. He's in two people that are standing out in the parking lot before they go because one person's dealing with something that's just kind of overwhelming them. And it's just those soft, still voices. Preparation may come from the pulpit, but the true ministry comes from the interaction that we have with one another. That's really where you see the soft, still voice. That person was ministered to and appreciative of it all, but it will soon be forgotten and they'll soon move on from there but God did a work. God does a miracle in our conversations. God does a miracle in just through our, our, our actions when our, when, when our hearts are stirred to compassion. I mean, just think of it. Anytime God stirs your heart, that's a divine work of God. It's a miracle. So many times we're looking for earths quaking and rocks breaking in the fire that we overlook the still, small voice of the Lord. And if we can learn to recognize the still, soft voice, we won't find ourselves in the same position that Elijah was on the side of that mountain wishing that he would die, but that we would be re-energized in the Lord and recognize God uses me. God uses you. I would imagine if we took the survey, just about every person in this church will recognize how God used somebody, not 
not just me, but somebody else in this church in their life. Because how do I know that? That's how it works. Some people will recognize that multiple people were used in their lives. So we define great, and as Jesus used great here, sometimes as big, loud, and bright. We'll look at the Super Bowl. Super Bowl kind of over the top. Finally had a game that halfway lived up to it. The World Series or the World Championship. We'll raise our hands to be asked to be used by great things, but these are really things sometimes that the Lord describes as obnoxious. He, 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 he looks at just the ministry to one person. One person is something that is just over the top, and we need to see that in that capacity as well, that I'm willing to give of my ministry and myself for just one hurting person. Maybe it's just going to be one hurting person at a time. So what is really great in the sight of God? Well, he sent his apostles out in Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 20, it says, Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the heaven, from heaven. And behold, I gave you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. And so he's talking about, yeah, I gave you this ability to do these amazing things. Then there's that word, but. But, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now, see, what he's doing is he's connecting that which is the priority with salvation. Because isn't that what it's all about? Right now, the kids who are in there are learning about a worldwide flood. Was the flood really worldwide? And again, I, I do devotions and you know for the teachers before service. And I was just sitting in my office thinking, so I do the devotions for them. We do the same subject for two weeks. And so I do Thursday night and Sunday morning twice. So that's four devotions I do. How many devotions can you do on the subject, was there a worldwide flood? Because the answer is yes. And then where do you go from there? And a lot of times, pastors tend to say more than they really should say, so you don't want to detract from it. So, but, but God laid it upon my heart just before I walked in there. Well, if you want to know if there really was a worldwide flood. Now, what was the flood? The flood was judgment. Was there a worldwide judgment? And the Bible says, yes, there, there truly was. But how do I know that? Well, I can see that. Well, if I look at darkness, how much better can I see the truth in light? And so... Is there a worldwide flood? Well, I'd have to say yes. Why? Because I see in the Great Commission, there's worldwide ministry. There's worldwide grace. God desires that all men would be saved. In, in, in uh, Acts chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, go throughout all of the world. And so God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's not that God loved Israel that he gave his only begotten son or the Middle East or whatever it might be. I see salvation has come to the world. Why does salvation come to the world? Because judgment was due the world. But as judgment was due the world, God so loved the world that he gave his son that the world wouldn't be judged. And so that just goes to show me that as I see the love of God for all of the world, then that just proves to me, yes, judgment was coming, but the great love that, the God, that God had for us, yet that while we were still sinners, Christ died for everybody who was in the world. And at that point, it just made really great sense to me. 
So in the sight of the Lord, the spiritual miracle of salvation far outweighs any physical miracle. Physical miracles are important because Jesus did them. And we need to recognize them as coming from God because God still does do that. But so many times our focus can be on that. And what happens when our focus is upon the physical miracle? We so easily become deceived. And there's many charlatans out there, charlatans out there that deceive people because, well, they're so looking for the physical and they don't see the spiritual. They're looking at the signs and the wonders, but they're never looking at God, which those things are to be pointing to. So in the sight of the Lord, what God does in the hearts and the souls of men and women, that is always a priority. Now we look back and we see, well, that's exactly what these guys were setting off to do because we've read the epistles, we've read the book of Acts. Salvation was going to spread not only throughout the known world, but across the world and throughout the ages. And so Jesus, when you look at it in comparison to what the apostles' ministry was to do, then it wasn't better than Jesus' ministry, but it was greater in magnitude of Jesus' ministry because Jesus did that initial work, but then these apostles went throughout all of the world and throughout all of eternity, and one day it even landed on your doorstep, salvation. And again, this is a great work that continues to do, and I've got a part in it, and you've got a part in it, at least potential to have part in it, is to be part of that process that God is using to spread his gospel and salvation throughout all of the world. And so you start looking at it in that context, and it makes perfect sense. So as you sit here tonight, do you want to do great things? Do you want to do greater things, even according to the Lord's own words that Jesus did? Well, it's possible, the Lord's telling them, based upon three things. First, you must have the faith that brings salvation. Salvation, define it so many ways. You must be born again, saved, right with God, going to heaven, regenerated, saved by the Lamb, washed by the blood, set free from sin. However you want to do it, you've got to be saved. I like the born again because it speaks of a, a, a moment in time when your life was altered by the Lord. And so if you want to do greater works, Jesus Christ must be your Lord and Savior. How could you possibly lead people to that place where you were unwilling to go? talking about these great works, these great works being salvation. Before I can lead anybody else to salvation, I myself must be saved. Secondly, Jesus must first go to the Father. This is the consummated work upon the cross. Going to the Father, it speaks of Jesus' death, his resurrection, but also his ascension. It's the fulfillment of God's plan for the salvation of humanity. Every spiritual thing we do is based upon Jesus Christ going to the Father, or his, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. Again, Paul, when he went into Corinth, said, I come preaching nothing other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. And because of these things, the reality of these things, we have seen the result. Putting it back into the context of what we're looking at here, think of it this way, when Jesus ascended to heaven, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and if you do the math, it seems that there was about 500 believers at that time. Could have been more, but it was right in that ballpark if you go and you, you figure out all of these people who had seen him. Now, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus leaves to go to the Father. That's very clear. And the apostles are told to wait. What are they waiting for? We know they're waiting for Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, 
they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he enables them to both preach, but also enables the hearer to hear. And now we see just in Peter, he stands up. And this man who every time he stood up and said something, you would think everybody would cringe. What is he going to say now? But now he stands up in Acts chapter 2, the remainder of the chapter. Well, that was his 3,000 soul sermon. 3,000 at once. You know, Jesus after... Now, I'm, I'm not talking about the inability of the Lord, so don't get me wrong on this. But Jesus lived for three, um, three years, not 300 years, three years on this earth. 500 people get right with him. Peter stands up once and speaks. 3,000 people get right with the Lord. This, make no mistake about it, is God's plan. It's how God desires to work. Because I can't say, you know, here's Jesus, listen to him. What do we have? Well, it's what I have on the pulpit. Here's his word listen to him and it's that which ministers to that's where the great works come about so again in acts chapter 2 verse 41 peter that's in conclusion or the results of his three thousand soul sermon and then he opens his mouth again in, in acts chapter 4 verse 4 and that's his five thousand soul sermon so there's eight thousand people and the holy spirit's just been upon him for it seems like close to just 24 hours not very long not very long at all but god is doing great works now I got to wonder, what was Bartholomew doing during this time? What? What was Jude Thaddeus doing during this time? What were these other guys doing? I have to believe they're probably doing pretty much the same thing because the same spirit on Peter was on them. We're just not told about everything that happened and everything that the Lord was doing through everybody. What happened to the rest of those 500 people? Well, they were going forth and making disciples as well. And so now, all of a sudden, this, this ministry that, again, we saw the Lord doing and these teachings that he was giving, now it's germinating throughout the world. And Christianity is not only blossoming, but it's moving like wildfire. And so it, it's essential. It, it was important for the, you want to do greater works? You've got to be born again. And then secondly, Christ had to go to the Father. That's been accomplished. And then lastly, you've got to be a person of prayer. How come I never see the Lord move? How come God never uses me? How come I've never been used to, to, to lead somebody to Jesus Christ? Are you a person of prayer? This is the greatest lack that I see in the church and that I see in our church today. And I'm not saying you don't pray or nobody prays, but just in general, when it comes to corporate prayer, this is the greatest lacking that I see in the body of Christ. The Lord laid it upon my heart. I, I, I don't know how long it's been. It's been over a year. It might have been two years. That at noon, we just need to stop and pray. So every day that I'm here in the office, at 12 o'clock noon, we stop. Yeah, it's been over two years. We stop, and we gather for prayer. We just have a list. And the idea is to pray for the church. And so we do put some individuals. Bill, we've been praying for you for the last month. You're on the list. You made the list, Bill. Um. But the Lord just impressed upon our heart just to pray because I, I can so easily allow it to get past me. As I'm doing a study, and maybe today I can get two studies done, and then I can do this, and then I can do that, and then I can do this, and all of a sudden the opportunity for prayer is done. Sal's here pretty much every day. He's got his alarm set. So I'll be in the middle of something where I probably would say later, but then Sal comes marching in with a chair, and so then I have to stop and pray. But, you know, it's just a great reminder. 
and it can seem forced, but sometimes, you know, force isn't a bad thing. You know, just, just to have that time on the calendar just to make sure that I do it, to keep my heart pure before the Lord, that we're not just trying to get through the list, but to truly lift the list up. And so you've got to be a person of prayer if you want to see the Lord move, if you want to be part of the greater things that the Lord says that we're going to be able to do. Prayer removes the sense of the distance between us and God and is essential to the ability to do spiritually great things. Uh, The beginning of November, I believe it was, my wife was up north with her mother. No, she wasn't. She was up with my daughter, Jamie, up in Washington. She was having a baby. And as she was up there, we were separated for about three weeks. Now, the beauty of this is we have FaceTime now. On her phone and my phone, we can look at each other and we can talk with one another. That kind of reduced the time and it kind of reduced the distance. And it's the same idea with prayer. You can't look at them on the phone, but you know what I mean. That it it reduces the distance because we're having that conversation. We're having what? You're having a relationship. Every relationship that we have, for the most part, is based upon conversation. I mean, think about it. You think you have a relationship with your dog. Why? Because you talk to your dog. You talk to your cat. They don't have a clue what in the world you're saying, but that's how our relationships work. So we even bring that into that realm. How much more so should it be that way with our God? Verses 13 and 14. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. What does it mean to pray in the name of Jesus? Leon Morris, the commentator, said, It is prayer proceeding from faith in Christ, prayer that gives expression to the oneness with Christ, prayer that seeks to glorify Christ. Now keep in mind, the name, to pray in the name of Jesus, name, it denotes the nature and the essence of a person. Now we are told in Isaiah chapter 59 that our sins have separated us from God, not that he can't hear, but he won't won't hear. And so I look at the nature and the essence of Christ in his name. Well, it's grace, it's love, and it's mercy. This is how a sinner is heard, is through the nature and the essence of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way that I'm able to approach God in prayer is based upon the grace that allows me to do so through the atoning death of Jesus Christ. And so, in Jesus' name, a lot of times we'll pray frivolously, we'll pray even according to our own will, and then we'll, atta- we'll attach onto the end, in Jesus' name, and seem- seemingly thinking that that qualifies the whole thing. You don't need to say, in Jesus' name. You don't have to say it. I do. Some of it's become habit. There's no doubt about it. But really, my focus is at the beginning of prayer rather than the end of prayer. I kind of think about that before I come up to the pulpit. Now, I don't plan out exactly what I'm going to pray for before I come up to the pulpit. I want that to be spirit-driven. But I, as the song is finishing, as I'm standing up here, I want to pray according to the will of God. I don't want to just say that's those words that I say before we start the study. I want this to be honest prayer before a holy God. And again, we need to have that mindset. Now, if you say, in the name of Jesus, don't have a problem with it, because again, I say that as well. Now, I purposely say it when I have an opportunity to do the city invocation, because those words to me are an opportunity to share the name of Jesus Christ. That validates me to a degree in front of those people as a Christian pastor. 
but as far as our everyday prayers, just putting in the name of Jesus at the end doesn't mean anything if it doesn't come from your heart. If you don't put in the name of Jesus at the end, your prayer still means everything to him if it comes from the heart. Verses 15 through to verse 18. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you have a love for him, and how do we love him? The only reason we love him is because he first loved us. The greatest commandment is to love God and to love the brethren. Verse 16. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. Study's pretty much over. We're not going to get into the Holy Spirit tonight, but he's going to do that in the weeks to come. But this is the Holy Spirit. Now keep in mind, What's happening here? Why are their hearts so troubled? Their hearts are troubled because their helper, Jesus Christ, is going. But he says here, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. Why does Jesus divide off the Father? Not that he's divided off, but why does he point him out? Because this is his plan from the beginning. When we see the Father, when Jesus is speaking of the Father and what the Father is doing, the idea is he's working according to the plan that has been in place since the beginning of the world. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. Now when he says forever, that's for the rest of their lives, but it also is for the rest of the church age. And so the Holy Spirit will always be with us. Verse 17 the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. And so all this is built upon what he said in the first verse. Let not your hearts be troubled. Matter of fact, what I see here is, is that our hearts are going to be empowered. They're going to be empowered. And, and in essence, what Jesus is saying you're going to be spiritually better off without me physically being here, although I will always be here through the Spirit. I will never leave you, and lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, as he gave that greatest of all commissions. And so these things that I see, when he says forever, he's talking throughout the whole church age. And so that's why I can go back now and put myself in their place realize these promises, the power of the promises, and understand that I'm able to possess these promises as well. That the works I do will be through the soft, still voice of the Lord, but there's still going to be great things in the kingdom of heaven. Am I going to go out and save people? I hope to be used in that degree, but Lord, just give me some little, some little place in all that. Some little place in your equation that as long as I'm being used by you, Father, I'll find contentment in these troubling times. Father, once again, we just thank you, God, that you have given us your word, and your word is applicable to all situations and all circumstances. And Father, yes, we do live in troubling times, but the apostles were in troubling times, and you entered in and said, let not your hearts be troubled. Father, let our hearts not be troubled as well. We truly do believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we believe in him, we look forward, Father, to the works. Or or maybe a better term, in how you desire to use us. And I pray, Father, that we would simply be a people who are found faithful. And so, Father, we just thank you for tonight. We lift up our prayer request, and Lord, we just thank you, Lord, that you move in the hearts of your people. I lift up my brother Bill here up front, Bill Reese, and I lift up Bill Temple in the back. And Father, I pray for those who are troubled today, that Father, you would meet them and heal them and just may your hands be upon them. 
Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to gather together tonight to pray, Father, that you'd be glorified through our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? The uh, couple's dinner is a week from Saturday already, and so that means that Sunday is going to be the last day to sign up. So if you want to come to the couple's dinner, you need to sign up by Sunday. Or if you're able to help serve, that would be a blessing as well, and you can sign up anytime on that. You can even just show up for that. We just need to sign up so we know how much, for as far as those who are going to be attending the dinner, so we know how much food to get and all. And then, a week from this Sunday is the absolute last moment to sign up for the woman's retreat. So that's a week from this Sunday. That's going to be the final day to sign up. We still have four places left on the woman's retreat. So if you're planning on coming, you have waited to the absolute, well, I guess it's not the absolute last minute until a week from Sunday, but it's a coming. God bless you guys. Have a great week. Thank you.